Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Papaya Podcast. I'm your hostess, trying her mostess, Sarah Nicole, and each week I'm going to be dishing out some sweetness mixed in with some seeds of wisdom or something like that. So get ready to get inspired, get candid, get real, because we are all in this digital space together. I love having new conversations that might actually just teach us something really cool and new. So please welcome Angela Shieson. Thank you for having me. I did it. I you pronounced did your it. name. Okay, so Angela, tell us what you do and who you are. I am a litigation lawyer. So I am a lawyer that fixes problems, mostly for women. I go to court. I address issues of revenge pornography, of intimate image distribution. I represent victims and survivors of human trafficking, of sexual assault, sexual abuse. So I have a pretty female and queer-centric practice, which is a bit unusual for a lawyer. Yes. And how, what caused you to want to do that? Like where, where did it fall in line that you were like, this is what my work is going to be? I had a pretty traditional career path out of law school. Okay. I articled, which is your sort of practicum that you do at a criminal defense firm. Mm -hmm. I stayed there for five or six years. And at the same time, I'm a feminist. Oh, I love. I'm a feminist. I'm a queer person. I'm very outspoken about that. And so through my volunteer work Mm -hmm. and through my just being in the community, a lot of people were coming to me with their legal problems. Yes. And that was the work that I was really loving. That was really captivating me. Yeah. And that, you know, motivated me enough that, for example, I ended up taking on a case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. No way. Um, Are you allowed to say what that is? Oh, absolutely. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know what <laughs> all this legal <laughs> stuff. I'm already like sweating. No, that's really cool. Can you go ahead and share? And, and so that was really what inflamed my passion. So yeah. my practice just really developed in that way. I went out on my own and I have the best clients in the world. The Supreme Court of Canada yeah. case was a Trinity Western University case. Okay. So the Christian University at West. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Uh, they opened up a law school mm-hmm. and they wouldn't allow queer people to go. What? Actually? Actually, in Canada. How do they get to ask that question? You would have to sign a community covenant, a promise, saying that you wouldn't engage in any intimacy outside of marriage. 
And they didn't count gay marriage as marriage. So you couldn't basically not at all. You couldn't, especially in good conscience, signing up and denying that part of who you are. Other problems, you also couldn't access birth control or abortions under the community covenant. Yeah. So I sued the BC government over that. The law societies across Canada were accrediting, not accrediting. We all sort of bound together. Long story, David and Goliath sort of story. We ended up at the Supreme Court of Canada and we won. That's amazing. So what happens when you win? Do they have to change their policies or is it like somebody pays a really big bill? They do not have a law school. Okay, so they just... Unless and until they will take queer people. Amazing. Wow, that's incredible. Is it still like... I guess it's so interesting to be in 2020 and these are still things like these discrimination cases are happening still all across Canada. All across Canada. And obviously we see it in the news. It's happening in the States as well. Yeah. But Canada always felt a little bit more progressive. So would you say that this is something that because so much legal action is coming into play now that you feel like this is something that is going to be history for our children to grow up in? I hope so. I mean, that's what we all want is yeah. a better world for our children. Absolutely. It, it sounds a bit cheesy, mm-hmm. but I really believe that. So my small part of that is trying to make a world where women are valued and yes. recognized, making a women where queer people aren't discriminated against. Yeah. I'm obviously a very small part of that. I think you're a part of that as well. I think everyone's a part of it if you're willing to have conversations about it, if you're willing to get uncomfortable with it sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think for a lot of people, like I'm even sitting here right now, I didn't even know about that case happening. There's mm-hmm. there's so much that we're closed off to or not always paying attention to. So sometimes I think it just takes paying attention. You know, when we're talking about discriminated groups, it's it's often really important to go and listen. I mean, I listened to JVN's podcast, Jonathan from Queer Eye. Yes. And he's taught me a lot. And then he came out on his, with his new book and on Instagram with being HIV positive. And I immediately thought, he was dying. And it was so interesting to hear that there was actually an entire community of people, how he's been living with this for so long. And I was like, if I didn't follow him, I wouldn't be hearing these conversations and a lot of like how he's risen through this. Like it it wasn't a death sentence for him. It is like a life, it's a new part of his life journey. And he's really started to destigmatize something as huge as HIV, which has been, it's remarkable, but again, sight unseen, like you're not, if you're not listening and you're not paying attention, you're not going to know and you're not going to learn. I stood up and cheered when I heard that he had come out with his status. Yeah. Absolutely stood up and cheered. The studies show that the main thing that causes people with biases to change their bias is knowing somebody. Isn't that insane? Yeah. Wow. Know somebody and then you find out that they're trans. You know somebody and then you find out that they're gay. You know somebody and then you find out that they're had an abortion or have been a sexual assault survivor. Mm -hmm. You know somebody and you find out that they're HIV positive. Yeah. That is incredibly powerful, and it's such an act of service on his part. Yeah, and I and I think it speaks volumes to why I preach so often for people to follow diverse humans on their social feeds. Yes. Even people that you might disagree with or people that you feel almost stretched to think of. We, we've come into a society now, and, and while I do completely honor the whole mental health part of it, where you're like, if you're following people that make you feel bad about yourself, maybe unfollow them. Completely agree with that still. I think we still need to honor our mental health, but we are in 
us day and age, we actually get to choose what we see every day. We get to choose what news we're basically watching and we get to curate that exactly the way that we see fit. The problem with it is we can also create a bubble life mentality where we just follow people that are exactly the way we are and we don't actually get to stretch our minds and learn much of anything. So last two years, I've been putting so much focus on following people that are nothing like me, that live completely different lives. I've been following a lot more queer couples, a lot more LGBTQ families. I've even been following some uh, like in the transgender, like just parents of them to understand like their perception of it. Just for like my daughter has a friend who is transgender. So it's been such a learning process for all of us. And on top of that, following people in, you know, of different color, different size, like different ages, you have no idea what's going on in the world until you're willing to listen to the stories of those who have them. I couldn't agree more. I think it's such a good point because we don't just curate our feeds. Yeah. We curate our lives too. We choose to surround ourselves with people. I do a lot of public speaking about women in law, mm-hmm. uh, women in business. Mm-hmm. And one thing I always say is, especially when there are some older white gentlemen in the yes. audience, I say, who do you refer work to? Who do you hire? Who do you mentor? Do they look like you? Mm. And if they do, that's a problem. Refer work to somebody who doesn't look like you, who is a different skin color, a different ethnicity, is an immigrant, is whatever, because that's the only way that things are going to change. Oh, we that's surround such a good ourselves. Point. And it and it's at the heart of it, really an economic issue as well. You follow people online that don't mm-hmm. look like you, you're giving them more likes, you're boosting their profile, especially yes. somebody like you. Yeah. If an older white partner at a law firm chooses to take a young black student under their wing, that makes a huge difference in the career of that person and their life trajectory. And their life trajectory. And not only that, but it would probably stretch the mind of those that they're working with, right? And probably help them give context to a lot more things that perhaps the rest of it, especially when you live in privilege, it's very easy to just like walk around and live in life. And until you have even just a minute amount of, like you said, once you relate to somebody and you know somebody, then suddenly you care. But that doesn't always happen for a while. Like you can't have somebody that you suddenly relate to in your entire personal world with every single social issue there is. And just to speak into the world of like news, like we're not even talking about now in this day and age, like the news for decades has curated it. If there is a missing child who is white, it's on every single newspaper Mm -hmm. and on every single news channel. Yet there are thousands and thousands of, what is it called? Okay, so children of color, but also- what is it? First Nations, like, yeah, right? The missing, missing and murdered the indigenous women. Mm-hmm. We just had that big commission on that, big yes. legal commission. I don't think that a lot of people sort of outside of law got that. Uh, I actually had a woman who was on oh, the amazing. last week. So by the time this episode comes out, it would have been last week's episode, but she actually sat on the board for, mm. the, for the inquiry. And it was so funny because she's talking about it. And I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking, I actually don't know what the inquiry is because again, check my privilege girl, like didn't know because I wasn't paying attention. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to look it and seek it out, but now have the opportunity to be aware and start listening and understanding and gave her an opportunity to kind of tell her story through what happened in her life, which was essentially uh, her parents were murdered Mm -hmm. when she was nine in her home. They called for help and help didn't come for five hours. And so in that time span, her mother was killed and, you know, they were hiding inside the home. 
just a small, small, small snippet of like what is happening to indigenous people. Right. So, but beyond that, like we wouldn't, we don't see it in the news the same way. It's very buried and hidden. There's a lot of social issues that are happening all over the world and it's easier just to hide them than it is to bring it to the forefront. And I think one thing about the missing and murdered indigenous women commission is that the full title is the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Mm. It's something that's happening to children. Children, And yeah. it's something that we don't look at very often. But in this country, there are entire communities who don't have access to fresh water. Yes. drinkable water. Yes. Yes, I did. I learned about that through the last political election. And I remember, I always pronounce his name wrong. Yagmeet? Jagmeet. Jagmeet. Okay. Singh when he was running for NDP and he was saying if this was Toronto without clean water if it was Edmonton without clean water if it was Vancouver without clean water we wouldn't be having this conversation about how much money is it going to cost yes and I was like oh my gosh like literally I immediately after that I was following him on social now one really cool thing about him my daughter one day, she was talking to me and she was like, who are you going to vote for? And I'm like, well, I'm going to tell you what my thoughts are. And like, let's have it like we can have a conversation about who I'm going to vote for. And so I was sharing with her all the different things I learned and stuff like that. And she was like, oh, yes, I learned all about the different parties. And I was like, how did you how did you learn about that? She's like, well, on TikTok, I follow um, Jagmeet. And I was like, I'm sorry, he's on TikTok. And she oh, was I like, yes. That. And he was te- he was telling all the different things. I'm like, this guy actually took the time to invest in a platform with a young audience that cannot vote, knowing that these are the game changers that will happen in 10 years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is that they're watching it. I'm like, my daughter actually understood the elections based on a politician going onto a platform of people who were not going to vote this time around at all. And I was blown away. I'm like, that. that is the thing that is so, so cool about social media and the ability to to change so much and have the ability to actually shift not only people, but governments and so much more and even bring things into a spotlight like you're seeing all the time. But there's obviously a dark side of online as well. Yes. And you deal with that quite a bit. I do. So let's talk about two different things. Let's talk about online safety and let's talk about what our rights are in terms of imagery, revenge porn. Maybe you can kind of touch on what revenge porn even really is and you know what our rights are around everything. And then we can talk about online safety. Okay, so we're going to be here we, for a few weeks. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> These are big topics, but I think it's, I'm, I'm a mom who's, my oldest is 13. She's just now online. And there's a huge debate about whether or not we should allow teenagers online. And I'm very much of the heart of, I'm not going to bubble wrap my kids. I want them to learn through this because at some point they are going to be on social media or make that choice. And I want them to navigate the skills along with me while I'm here to help them, not just suddenly be thrown into it later. Now, with all of that, it has brought a lot of conversations. It has brought a lot of like mental health check-ins, but it also has brought a lot of like really cool community that my daughter never had. And I'm really happy for her in that. And she's learned a lot. There's a lot they're experiencing, but as a mom, I'm still, of course, terrified. There's a lot that can go on and it can sneak right under you so quickly, a new app, a new way of messaging. You just don't know what might happen and when. And uh, so maybe you can kind of share a little bit about what it kind of looked like in terms of our legalities around online. Such a good question. And I 
don't subscribe personally to the online offline divide. I mm-hmm. think that the two worlds are so integrated at this point yeah. that it's not incredibly helpful for parents to say, well, I just won't let my kid online. Yeah. Or for teachers to say, well, just don't go on the internet if somebody's bullying you on the internet. That's not the way the world works anymore. Yeah. So just saying don't do it is not realistic. It's almost a new life skill that we have to navigate. Absolutely. And it's no more useful, in my opinion, than saying, well, listen, if you don't want to get sexually assaulted, don't go to a bar. Yes. Yes. Just don't exist in the outside world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that's what we would have to do to keep from getting assaulted offline. Yeah. No, that's so true. It doesn't work to say, well, don't go online. No, exactly. It's just not a workable solution. So in Canada, we do have some new revenge porn legislation. What that is, is people tend to call it revenge porn. It's short. It's snappy. It's easily memorable. What we're really talking about is the non-consensual distribution of intimate images. Okay. So we're talking about... The pictures that people have sent each other. Absolutely. In a relationship or outside of one. Absolutely. And then they're posting, the person who receives them are posting them online without consent. Mm -hmm. They're posting them to pornography sites without consent. Wow. They're showing them to their friends. Because they now feel like they're in ownership of that material. Exactly. Gotcha. And they are not. Okay. They are not. You have to have consent to show somebody an Mm -hmm. intimate image that somebody has sent you. So if somebody threatens you with, I'm going to share this, what would be a proper response to that? That is extortion. Okay. That is uh, a criminal and civil offense. Amazing. So you get to use those big words. Big words. And I can bring down the house on them. Plain and simple. Okay. Ironically, the men in my practice who are experiencing revenge porn, it's mostly for extortion. It's yes. Give me money, give me influence, give me whatever, yes. or else I will. Mm-hmm. But with women, the motivation tends to be plain old fashioned, misogynistic humiliation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It's they've said that men's greatest fear is being laughed at while women's greatest fear is being murdered. Absolutely. So it goes to say, like, I can understand why a woman would, that would be her target, right? That would be why. Is it happening more than we realize? Yes. Okay. Absolutely it is. It's it's so prevalent. It's so huge. The issue is that a lot, not a lot of women, especially young women, have the resources to take the legal avenues that are available to them. Yeah, so that would be kind of my next question is what does happen if something like this is happening, if you're being threatened by it or if it has been distributed already? Knowing that a lot of like, and is it true that if somebody is younger and it's distributed, if they're under the age of 16, is it considered child porn? Oh, it is. Okay, so that's even bigger. So for a parent of a kid, like I almost would be not hesitant. I, I would almost want to say to her, like, it's one of those, like, Ugh, I don't want to tell her how to navigate this to happen because I don't want her to send those pictures in the first place. But at the same time, I want her equipped with what to do if somebody privately would say something that I would never be made aware of, right? So what is the steps that somebody can take? And is it something that is accessible for all? Or is it, do you have to have the money? Like, are there foundations that kind of help with this? I will break that down a little bit. Okay. The fact of the matter is that kids, senior citizens, people our age, everybody is going to send intimate photos. Yes. Like it or not, it's going to happen. Oh, 100%. And 
our Supreme Court in Canada mm-hmm. has actually recognized that sending intimate photographs can be a really healthy part of sexuality. Really? Not just for adults, seniors, but also for kids. Interesting. Interesting. How is that? So there is a line of thought. Okay. And it is a line of thought that I subscribe to. Okay. That the child pornography laws shouldn't apply where it's two kids, basically, where it's mm. two boyfriend and girlfriend, boyfriend and boyfriend, girlfriend and girlfriend, and yeah. combination. We're talking about teenagers. Where yes. the average age of losing virginity now, I think, is age 13. Do you know? Oh, my gosh. I know. It's my kid's 13. And I was like, you better not. Like, uh, I'm not I'm not emotionally ready for that. You like, can't be emotionally ready for that. That sounds I've heard really that. Young. I could be wrong. You I know, don't know. It. I don't know. I deal with a lot of young people in my practice. It wouldn't yeah. surprise me. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, that seems young. It does seem young. So I'm a proponent of if it's consensual, if everything's great, mm-hmm. if, uh, you know, if everyone's on the up and up, that those photographs should not be criminalized. Right. The criminalized part comes when the person receiving them then posts or shows yes. or shares without consent. Okay. That to me is the wrong. That's right. the bad part. Okay. And that's a criminal offense regardless of the age of the parties. Yes. So you can actually be charged criminally. Okay. And go to court, get a criminal record, be put, you know, the whole thing. And it's also a civil wrong. So you can be sued personally by Oh. Yeah, by the person in the photographs. You can be sued by the person in the photographs. Yes. Okay. So the state can take it up on your behalf or you can sue personally. Okay. Both of those options are available to people. See, these are things that unless you would be going like I wouldn't even know to like didn't even know that those two things could really exist. I guess that's kind of similar, not similar, but makes more sense for me to put in my head with the OJ Simpson, Nicole Brown case where he was not convicted of the murder, but they got like a legal, the family was able to sue him. Exactly. So two different cases. Two different cases. But one that they won, one that they lost. Exactly. Okay. The burden of proof is higher. The parties are different. Yeah. It's a whole thing that I won't bore your listeners No, with. no, no. Fair enough. But what's important is that people have options. Yes. So even just speaking with a lawyer, and there are a lot of lawyers who do this pro bono. Yeah. There are some foundations that are available as well. Okay. Who can assist you through the process. I would say anybody having this problem can contact me and I can okay. help them up with the resources that they need. That's amazing. Because it's huge, it's prevalent, and it can really ruin your life. And I think that the more that people take action, the more this stops. Like, it's one of those things that I think because people aren't aware that there is legal rights around it, that they're just thinking this is happening to me. I'm going to have to pay this. I mean, we've watched it happen to politicians. We've watched it happen to really high profile people. And so I didn't even know really that we had rights around that. And part of that is that people feel such shame. So, so many times people come to my office, they sit across from me in the conference room Mm -hmm. and they just say like, I can't believe that I did this. Yeah. And so they never sought help because they feel that internalized shame when it has nothing to do with them. Yes. Here's the thing. You go to a restaurant, you haul out your credit card, you pay with your credit card. Mm -hmm. The waiter steals your credit information, impersonates you, defrauds your bank account. Nobody is going to say, well, Sarah... Why did you give your credit card information to a stranger? Yeah. You know what? 
you should have expected this. You could have used cash. Yeah. You didn't. That is such a good analogy. And so nobody should be feeling ashamed or like they did something wrong by doing this perfectly normal, healthy sexual expression. I mean, it makes a ton of sense. And I completely agree with you there. Person Um, who's wrong is the person who stole your credit card. The person who's wrong is the person who posted your photo without your consent. Yes, and it comes back down to victim shaming, right? And and I think we were just having a conversation before this about one of my posts recently that was about not an invitation. What you're wearing is not an invitation. What people don't realize is how many DMs I got through that. How many women were like, I haven't said anything Mm. because this happened or I had this person raped me in my parents' home because he was drunk and his first words to me were, what did you expect with the pictures you post online? What did you expect by how you dress? You've tempted me. This is what it's caused. And then women reinforcing it with, we just need to be modest and we need to be this. And then we're protecting the boys from their temptation. Not we're like women should be allowed to exist in their skin on a hot summer day in a tank top and not be worried about getting raped. And then after that, so after that whole thing happened and the whole rape culture conversation came up, I found this Instagram page called why I didn't report. Yes. And it has blown my mind how many women. So we hear these stories, we have all these things, but the more we fight back and we actually, it's that willingness to talk, but it's also, it it takes a lot. There's a lot that happens after a sexual assault and sexual assault is not always rape. It can be a lot of different things, you know, because this is one of the things that you work in as well. What are some of the after effects of sexual assault and where does that work into the legal world? The after effects can be huge. Now, I mm-hmm. cannot generalize. I of course. will not stereotype about what a good survivor or a good victim looks like. No, yeah. Because people react in different ways. Absolutely. Some women show up in my office and they are devastated. Yeah. They are just completely devastated and ruined. Mm-hmm in that they have uh, mental health effects, they have financial effects, they have maybe dropped out of school because they couldn't get out of bed, their university didn't support them. Other women show up in my office and they're like, I don't fucking care that this happened. Mm. It happened, it sucked, and I want him to pay. Yeah. I'm angry. That is also a perfectly appropriate response. Fair. You are allowed to be angry. Yep. You do not have to have, be traumatized. Yep. You do not have to not be able to get out of bed. People experience things completely differently. Yes. We're having a really interesting, if I can use that term, time sure. here in Ontario because the government is cutting a lot of supports that were available to really? sexual assault survivors. What were some of those programs? The main one was the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board. Oh, okay. Which is exactly what it sounded like if you were the uh, survivor of a crime, any crime. Yep. But a lot of it was sexual assault. Yes. You could go. You didn't have to go through the criminal system. You didn't have to go through the civil system. You didn't have to go to the police. Mm -hmm. But if you presented evidence that you were the victim of a sexual assault or survivor of it, They would give you money for counseling. Okay. They would give you money for your damages, what we legally call damages. Yeah. It was a great program. And now it is gone. That's devastating because that's one of the biggest things that I found in terms of even just using the word privilege, access to mental health help 
It mm. is not covered by our basic healthcare system. So unless you have a spouse or yourself that is under a benefits program that covers it, it is $200 an hour out of pocket. And most of us know that it's going to take several months, if not years, of yes. working through these programs and even paid my, even my own daughter, it took about six months of waiting before she was going to be seen with a counselor. It is not a completely accessible thing. So for somebody who has been victimized is now dealing with mental health stuff, things like that to be cut is devastating. It's completely unacceptable. It doesn't even make sense. And a lot of people who show up in my office, you sort of say, well, you know, it's not about the money. I just want this person to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to do it to anybody else. 100%. That is wonderful. That is noble. But you know what? Money's important too. Mm. The money will get you counseling. Yes. The money will get you a vacation with your girlfriends yes. to start to feel like a human again. Mm -hmm. The money will get you that gym membership so you can go boxing and yes. get all of your aggression yes. out. The money will get you fabulous shoes and a haircut so you start to feel pretty again you start to feel like it, a it person get you a lot of things so money is really important yes and if we had a feminist government if we had a government that put its money where its mouth was we would have basic mental health yes. services yes and we would have special and viable options for people who survive domestic violence people who survive sexual assault and Let's talk about, because we had, um, my friend Marky was on this podcast and she shared her experience in human trafficking and I didn't realize how prevalent it was and also how hidden it was. And you've said that you've worked in human trafficking with those survivors and stuff as well. Somebody like that coming out of a situation like that, they've got nothing. Is there a support in place for them? Very little. Very little. There's very little. There's no criminal injuries compensation board anymore. There's okay. no fund that you can apply to that I'm aware of. If anybody else is aware of it, then I'm, I hope they will contact you and correct me. Yes. But as far as I know, you basically have nothing. Okay. There's so little actual money and actual action for all the talk mm -hmm. from our politicians about how abhorrent human trafficking is, which it is. It is. Like the girl I talked to, she was, um, she lived in Hamilton, Ontario. She was taken by a friend who was a female. She was forced into stripping, which then turned into prostitution. And I mean, it was one of those things that completely opened my eyes to this entire world. And I remember asking her like, how many, how many people in stripping are being trafficked? And she was like, almost all. And that was, that was a pill to swallow. I, even I had a friend of mine who was like, I've always been an advocate for women who choose that for work. And I had no idea that it was so common that they've been trafficked. And that's a, it's a gutting thing, I think, especially for Canadians, because for many of us, or even in North America as a whole, we think that that's not happening here. We very much feel like in the movies, it happens in Europe. And in the movies, it happens in foreign countries. Yes. And it's happening under our noses. And it's happening with, with people that you wouldn't even know and have been made scared to be quiet. And I started out my legal career working with a lot of sex workers. Okay. Um, when I was in law school. Essentially, I, I was doing some internships okay. in the downtown east side of Vancouver, yep. which I'm sure you're aware of. Mm -hmm. And until we have full decriminalization of sex work and we recognize it as labor and as work, mm -hmm. any time that we have regulations, which yes. we do in Canada, yes. people will go underground. 
to avoid those regulations. And that's where trafficking comes in. And it's such an interesting conversation because I think for a lot of people, especially when you have a lot of conservative beliefs towards things, it feels like the right thing to do is to criminalize stuff, like criminalize abortion, criminalize this, criminal. And what it actually does is the reverse effect. It actually causes so much more damage and it actually creates so much more of it happening and in a much more dangerous way. And I think you're right. It comes down to a regulation if it's regulated, it gives people rights and it gives people choice and it gives people safety to do it. And it actually stops it from being as like, if you don't give access to birth control and don't give access to things like that, it's going to cause more pregnancies and then unwanted pregnancies. And if regard, my, I remember my mom saying this to me when we were younger, she was like, they couldn't take away abortions, but abortions will never stop happening. And, you know, I'm not somebody who would choose abortion for myself, but I completely support the right to do it because I understand that it is like a human right. It's a human issue, right? It's a human thing. And and not everyone will agree with that. But as I've learned the statistics and as I've learned the real hard facts behind some of these things, and again, like the decriminalization of even sex work, it actually minimizes it from even happening. And it makes it so much safer for women. And regardless of your belief system, if we can get behind women being more safe, (laughs) I think we can all agree on that. Yeah, women have abortions in the exact same number, whether it's legal or not. The only difference is that more women die. More women die. When it's not legal. I remember my mom always saying this saying of like coat hanger abortions. Yes, absolutely. And when you say it like that, I'm like, it's just, it's just devastating because it's like, yeah, it's not going to stop it from happening. It's just going to happen in a much more horrific sense. And that part makes it really difficult. And if there is, again, regardless of it, what you believe, like regardless of your moral systems around it, it's important that these things are like that church and state kind of is separated. So you can have your own beliefs without putting them onto an entire political platform or the laws in a country that can actually kill people. You know, it's really funny. I have throughout my career represented some people that, you know, you would consider bad. I've represented terrorists and murderers. Interesting. All of this stuff. But I've also had the great, enormous privilege to represent uh, a lot of abortion clinics. Interesting. And the only time that I have ever been fearful as a lawyer was representing abortion clinics. Wow. Because the people who opposed them terrified me. It's almost more dangerous. Like, yeah, the human the human life value becomes very interesting. I actually found that during my divorce. It seemed very interesting to me that people were more concerned about the tie of a marriage and this piece of paper more than they did the two humans that existed yeah, within that. More than they that. cared about you. And I find that again happening in terms of like, and I'll be, I'll be completely honest. There was a time where I did not agree with abortion. I, I had a very conservative uh, surrounding and I very much was like, abortion should be, you know, illegal. It's wrong. It's all of these things. I've had the opportunity to educate myself on these things and change my mind. Thank God. That said, knowing the true facts behind these things and understanding that there are people at the core and regard, again, repeating this again, regardless of what a belief system is. And I think what what happens for a lot of people is they truly believe that they're saving lives. So they're in their head. They're like, we are saving children. We need to fight really, really hard for this to save this child. 
not realizing that you are valuing something more than the human themselves. I actually heard recently that there are some bills looking at being passed in the States that even ectopic pregnancy cannot be ended, which if you know the medical and science background of that is almost always the mother is going to die. And it is a very, very high chance. It's a very high risk thing for an ectopic pregnancy to continue on. Ectopic pregnancy being that it implants is not in the womb and it implants either in the ovary or the fallopian tubes. Eventually, as it grows, it will uh, abrupt. The only cases of survival that have ever happened have been when it actually attached outside of the womb and onto vital organs, nearly killing the mother. That These are freak cases that happened, but they have actually wanted to change the law so that you can actually take the ectopic pregnancy, move it into the uterus to give it a shot at at reattaching, which I don't even know is scientifically impossible. It is scientifically impossible. It's not even a thing. It is not a thing. And it's putting that mother at, and like ectopic pregnancy usually is a wanted pregnancy. So that is like trauma after trauma after trauma and putting them into a room and saying, okay, we're going to try and like place the baby somewhere else and you might die and your baby certainly will. It's not a real thing. It's not a real thing. Yet there's actual laws like looking to be passed over things that have no, like it's not even a real thing. And then you have doctors who are going to be legally mandated to do a medical procedure that doesn't exist that may kill their patient. Yes. And they're going to have to choose between the Hippocratic Oath Mm -hmm. or getting arrested. Yes. It's so interesting. I had friends over for dinner last night and uh, one of our common friends had an ectopic pregnancy. Mm -hmm. She was in a war zone at the time. So she flew back. They, uh, they missed it. She shouldn't have flown at all. Oh, wow. Ectopic pregnancy, but the doctor in this country had missed it. She lost a fallopian tube. Oh, sad. So now she has a much lower chance. She wanted to have a child. Yeah. Now she has a much lower chance of that happening because the ectopic pregnancy wasn't removed fast enough. Yeah, and, and ectopic have, is like it's it's, it's a, very serious. very serious. You bleed the the internal bleeding is is quite high. A lot of people survive them, and a lot of people don't. But it's not something you can just leave and like just try and survive that pregnancy. That's it's not really a possibility. Well, I guess there is a slim one. There's very 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 rare cases. But I want to talk to you because these are a lot of really cool social issues, and I'm so impressed that you've been able to take your career and actually use it in almost a form of activism around, especially women and queer, as you said, is that something you knew you always wanted to do? Oh my goodness, no. So like you, um, I was raised in a pretty conservative environment. I went to Catholic school. I learned certain things about abortion. Mm -hmm. I learned certain things about women. I learned certain things about sex. Actually, I've learned very little about sex. Yeah, they don't even teach it in the public. My daughter just told me this last weekend. My husband looked at me and he was like, Sarah, she really doesn't know. And I was like, oh my gosh. And she's like, no, mom, they stopped teaching that. And I was like, oh my gosh. So it's everywhere now. They're not teaching it. It's all on us. And then we have this new online community, this new online world that you've yeah. been talking about with mm-hmm. sexting and child mm-hmm. porn and revenge pornography mm-hmm. and intimate image distribution. And we just expect children to I figure know. it out themselves. But yeah, I get what you're saying. So you grew up in a, you grew up pretty conservative. Pretty conservative. Uh, I left home pretty early. Okay. I went to a international high school. 
oh, in British cool. Columbia. That's amazing. And sort of was exposed to all kinds of different people, yes, all yes. kinds of different belief systems. Mm-hmm. I learned from my peers. It was incredible. Yeah. And then when I ended up going to law school, I never thought that I would be a lawyer. Okay. Uh, I basically applied to law school because I was bored. I knew that I would get in. I had graduated from my undergrad. Okay. But I had never met a lawyer before I went to law school. No way. I never so met So did you just think you would kind of work something in the legal world? Yeah. Okay, cool. It seemed fine. I went before tuition was extremely high. Okay. I worked to put myself through law school. And so I did it with very little debt. It's not something that you could do now, given yeah. how much tuition is. But I just kind of did it for fun, if you That's can believe hilarious. it. hilarious. Never met a lawyer and um, was just kind of thrown into this world where I always felt like an outsider. Yeah. I didn't have connections. I didn't have parents who were judges or parents yes. who were lawyers. Yes. So I think at the time that felt like a disadvantage, but I think that that big disadvantage was actually a huge advantage to mm. me because I had no preconception yeah. about what my legal career would be like, about who I would work with, yes. about how much money I would make, about who my clients would be. I just didn't have that. So I did it sort of on my own path, which has been the most rewarding thing. Oh, that's really cool. And how long have you been doing it now? I graduated from law school in 2010, I guess. Okay. Um, So you're nine years in, uh, almost 10? Yeah, a little bit. And how would you say is there, like, is there a pretty, are women lawyers on the rise or is it still a male dominated space? That is such a good question. So female lawyers are on the rise. We are actually the majority of people who graduate from law school now. That's incredible. Three cheers, standing ovation. Amazing. I'm so happy. Here's the catch. Okay. They don't rise to the top of the profession. Okay. We are underrepresented as partners. Okay. As high earners, Mm -hmm. sort of people in the C-suite. We don't make it to the upper echelons. And part of that is that law is a really hostile place for women, especially young women. Really? It's hostile to people who have to take time off to become parents. And it's hostile to people who don't sort of fit that expectation of being a straight, white, cis man. And so women leave the profession. And they leave in droves. Yes. And it's something that I am very passionate about trying to remedy. It's like the very things that you're fighting is happening within the legal world. Absolutely. So Interesting. I was telling you before we started yeah. recording that I had recently joined Twitter. Yes. And one of the things that I've been doing is posting tweets under the hashtag of Dear Sirs oh. to let people know what I experience on a daily mm-hmm. basis as a female lawyer. And then people also send me submissions, which oh, keeps that's them safe. really cool. Keeps them safe and anonymous. Yes. I can do it on their behalf because I'm at that point in my career yes. where I have that luxury. Yes. My goodness. Some of the things that female lawyers put up with are absolutely wild. The Dear Sirs hashtag came out because I, my opposing counsel, would always send me letters saying, Dear Sirs. There were, there were a couple of lawyers on the file, all of whom were men. Oh, dear sirs, but you were. for me. Yes. And so when I called him on this, he got so offended. Oh, my goodness. Well, Ms. Chasson, it's tradition. Uh, it's not, why are you Don't trying to make this it. about gender? Well, because it is about gender. Because You're the is. one that's arguing for it. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I just found his reaction, mm-hmm. his absolutely offended, how dare I reaction, comical. 
Yes. So I posted about it and made a little hashtag and um, have been doing that ever since. That's really fun. So what's your name on Twitter? It is Angela Lawyer. Angela. A-N-G-E-L-A-W-Y-A. Okay, I'll link it in the yeah. show notes as well. That is awesome. And uh, yeah, I have to say, I think a lot of the things that we talked about are really, are going to be like head warps for a lot of people to talk about the legalities around different things and like, how, you know, that actually really surprised me to hear that it, it's actually been recognized that it's better for kids to self-express in, you know, imagery. Like, there's a lot of things that I really need to go back and like listen and learn from. Do you have any good resources that you know of? Yes. Okay. Um, I really enjoy the Instagram account Sex Positive Families. Okay. It is an incredible resource. Oh, I love that. I, mean, I work in this area. Yes. And I still struggle sometimes yes. with issues of consent, especially yes. around the holidays when we, mm. you know, may tell our children or encourage our children to give uncle yeah. whoever a hug or sit on yeah, Santa's I know. lap. I know. Issues like that. And we don't realize and and I think that everyone's like, oh, everyone's offended these days and they're oh so sensitive. It's like, no, actually we're a society that has a lot of trauma that we came out of and it's coming out in weird ways. And if we if we get these tools mm-hmm. and if we listen to the if we listen to science and if we listen to these tools and we listen to the people that are educated in those spaces and open up our minds to have these conversations. I mean, I was somebody who was a very closed box individual, very much had my beliefs and stuck in them. And what's so interesting to me now is coming along is how much opening your mind, it truly just allows you to learn in a way where you get to take other people's experiences and and get to digest them in a way that actually can make you a better person and to learn and to teach. I mean, anybody, whether you're a parent or not, you're a village to somebody who is growing up in mm. this in this, right? So I think it's important for us to remain supporters of that learning. I'm a considered an expert on consent, right? Yes, I, teach I bet. other lawyers about consent. Yes. I do uh, workshops at big law firms about consent. But I learned from this, of all places, the Sex Positive Family Instagram account yes. about how consent really is a skill and a lifestyle and a mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. And so if we give kids the tools to practice consent, yes how powerful that will be. And hopefully will put me out of a job someday. Oh, I love that. Oh, well, let's end on that. Thank you so, so much. This was such a cool conversation. Thank you for having me. I hope everyone kind of allowed themselves to open their minds and to listen to some of the things around this and and online safety and knowing your rights and uh, definitely check out her Twitter. And we're going to add some more information in the show notes as well for you to read up on. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Well, friends, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to today's episode. For more information on this episode, check out the show notes or find us on Instagram at the Papaya Podcast. And if you loved what you just listened to or know somebody who would, please share it. Simply screenshot today's episode in the podcast app and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to tag us. Last but not least, if you'd like to lend your personal support to the podcast, take a moment and leave a review on iTunes. We would be oh so grateful. Tune in next week for a fresh new episode of the Papaya Podcast, and we'll see you then.